Good morning, my name is Whitley Bechtel, and I have the privilege of reading the scripture this morning. It comes from John 2, 23 through 25, and that's on page 834 in the Pew Bibles. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the, at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. This is the word of God. Well, at this time, we're going to dismiss children ages four through first grade. They're going to go out now, but come back during the closing song. Aside from the, the youngest of children who, who do leave during the sermon, um, probably <laughs> as much for their benefit as ours in some ways, right? They, uh, they would probably be much rather, rather be with Kira. Um, we have had more children in the sanctuary all summer long. We've suspended some of the regular classes to give teachers a break and give students and, and children more time to be here in the sanctuary, and we're really glad for that. We've been collecting pictures drawn by both children and adults, um, and there's paper in the pews there if you'd like to, to draw a picture, and people have just been putting them on the stage, I don't know, as they're offering or something, <laughs> after this, each service, and then we put them up in the foyer throughout the week so you can see some of those. Some of them, you don't know why, what they're saying exactly, but if you remember, which can be hard, the week of the sermon and whatnot, they, they do tend to mo make more sense than they... <laughs> Some of them look like at first, but I want to suggest just a picture here, and then I'll pray that you might want to draw. So if you want to draw something, or this might um, invite you to draw something if you weren't planning on it, draw a picture of a heart, and you can go, you know, textbook-like looking heart, like an actual heart with all the, uh, the valves and whatnot, or you can draw just the classic heart shape, but then here, here's the challenge. Do something to that heart to make it look as ugly as possible. You can do something by adding something to the heart, drawing something around the heart, inside the heart, whatever it is you'd want to do, do that throughout the sermon. And so if, if you can kind of already hear where things are going, we should probably pray first, right? Uh, so let, let's, let's pray one more time, and then we'll look at this passage together. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, we thank you that As David read from Psalm 103, you know our frame. You, you, you know that we're made of, of, of dust, that you breathe life into. Lord, there's an appropriate humility on our part when we reckon with who we are. But we thank you that the scriptures don't, don't leave us just there. Lord, as you breathe life into us, at the beginning, Lord, you, you delight in the gospel and the good news story of Jesus to breathe that life into us in an initial type way in all of our lives, once and finally, but also again and again as we come to you with our need. And so we do that this morning and just ask that you would rivet our attention on the bigger story you're telling. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. A little over a dozen years ago, my wife told me the story. I, I wasn't there, but 
Um, she told me at the dinner table that she's, she's having lunch, and um, <laughs> it's a story we always, always tell. It's been so funny in our house, but um, so it's over a dozen years ago. My, my two oldest kids are there. Um, my son spills his first drink, or the drink, on the table, and then my daughter spills a drink, and then my wife spills a drink, <laughs> not on purpose, and then my daughter says, Mommy, I think there's something wrong with the table. <laughs> um, well, uh, that's one way to look at it, isn't it? Maybe the table needed to be resanded. Maybe the table was unlevel. Maybe there was huge divots in our table that made all these glasses unstable. <laughs> Maybe the problem was not the table, though. At our house, as innocent and sweet and fun as it is to remember that story, maybe that story is telling, or we might say replaying, an older story, a story as old as Adam and Eve, a story that's playing out in our lives all the time, and often in the, even the media that's around us. Some of you have been watching the show Stranger Things, a few of you probably, or lots of you. And a huge part of the show is this part they call the upside down. There's, there's Hawkins, the place where everybody lives, the place everybody can see. And then there's this part of the show that's like the upside down. It's, it's, it's Hawkins, but it's, it's, it's not. It's, it's dark and it's scary and it's where the evil comes out of and, and does in otherwise what would be unexplainable things. It's, it's this part that keeps causing trouble. This passage we have before us, short as it is, is part of this old story. It's at once an odd passage, but I believe also a wonderful passage. It's odd because it speaks to a part of us we might prefer to ignore. We don't like to look at the darkness in our hearts, let alone be told that God sees the impurity of our motives. It's also an odd passage because on the first reading, Jesus seems to be betrayed in, in such an odd way as though he's aloof and not welcoming. It's like people want him, but, but he doesn't want them. It's, it's strange. It's odd. But at the same time, as we read this passage in the context of the whole gospel, in the context of the person and work of Jesus, it's a wonderful passage that preaches good news. So, so here's how we'll look at it. We're going to do it in two parts. We're going to start with talking about why believing biblical anthropology is good for you. I'll say the second point later, but let me say the first point again. But leaving biblical anthropology is good for you. Now, as a general rule, I would try to not frame the outline in words that we don't use very often. But I thought this morning I'd just choose the words we don't use very often and then try my best to explain them. When I say anthropology, I, I mean, what does it mean to be a person? Or what is part of what it means to be a person? What does it mean to be human? In short, what are people like? Our passage speaks to part of what it means to be human. And what I mean by believing anthrop biblical anthropology, I mean for us to see that the Bible, I mean for us to see what the Bible has to say about us. And then to value what the Bible has to say about us as true and even, as I said, good for us. So, let me read the passage again one more time. So just leave it open. We're going to be referring to it often. 
John chapter 2, verses 23, 24, and 25. Now while he, that is Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. That's that's the passage. So far in John's gospel, we've met John the witness. He's out there in the desert, sort of like this maybe. This is Utah, I think, though. Um, He was a long ways away from Utah, but John the Baptist is out there in the wilderness. He's witnessing to Jesus. He's baptizing. We've met so far a few of the disciples, Philip, Andrew, Peter, Nathaniel. We saw the first sign that Jesus did. He turned water to wine at a wedding. Then Jesus travels south to Jerusalem during Passover. Passover is this giant celebration of God's deliverance. As one pastor puts it, he he describes it as Christmas and Easter and Independence Day. So July 4th, like all rolled into one. And Jesus is there in Jerusalem along with probably a few hundred thousand other people. In last week's passage, we heard about Jesus cleansing the temple, taking a whip and, and, and driving out the circus that it had become. So there are plenty of action so far, plenty of what John calls signs. And there have even been more than John lists. Again, let me read verse The first verse of our passage, verse 23. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. So these are the people down in Jerusalem, and he's doing more signs that are even listed here. These people believe in Jesus, it says. And in the Gospel of John, just to state what I think is kind of the obvious, believing is a big deal. The theme verse of the whole book tells us that everything that was written in the Gospel of John is done so that people would believe, so that you and I might believe. So here we read that many are in fact believing. That's a great thing, right? Verse 24 and 25. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about man, for he knew what was in each person. It's odd, right? These people believe, but Jesus doesn't believe their belief. There's a deliberate play on words in the Greek. The translation we have in front of us here, and actually most of the English translations say something like, they believed and Jesus would not entrust himself to them, but that word believe and entrust more woodenly would be something like they believed in him, but he didn't believe in them. It's the same word. Some of you will remember, as I do, with mixed feelings, baseball in the late 90s. The late 90s, a number of key players are hitting home runs um, like nobody had ever hit before, and to this day, no one has since. It was fun to watch. I remember going early to a St. Louis Cardinals game me and my friend Aaron, we get there early, we bring our baseball gloves. I'm like in high school, I still, I'm like, like I'm not eight anymore, I'm, I'm more like 18, and I'm bringing my baseball glove because I want to catch a home run in batting practice from Mark McGuire, and, and it was great. 
Several players those years were chasing 70 home runs in a single season, which in baseball, if you're not a baseball fan, and I'm not a huge fan, but I know enough to know that's a huge number of home runs, almost, you might say, an unbelievable amount of home runs, which is why some of us remember that era with conflicted you know, feelings. Uh, it just seemed too good to be true because it was. The players were cheating. And as if it wasn't like the results themselves that were like, this is amazing. It was the physicality of the players was changing before our eyes. I mean, like the forearms of these men looked like the, the thighs, essentially, of football players. Uh, not to mention their foreheads, you know, it, it, they were changing before our eyes. And the same thing happened in almost the same era with Lance Armstrong. Now, he changed in other ways than giant baseball players, but there was this mystique about him as this, you know, the cancer survivor who came, as it were, back to life and went on to win seven Tour de France titles, and it almost, again, seemed too good to be true. Now, in hindsight, as we look back on that Tour de France era there in the late 90s, early 2000s, I think, it, I think it's... 99 through, through 05, um, they, can't, they, they just removed all the winners from those arrows because they can't give it to second or third and so on because they were all cheating. <laughs> like there's no one to give the award to. I was, looking, I was looking this week just to like, okay, so it's World War I, World War II, and the Lance era, the only years they're not awarding. <laughs> winners. There was something about that era as you watched it that wasn't to be trusted. In the context of our passage, Jesus is saying something similar. Not of one era, but of all anthropology. There's something not to be trusted, something cracked, something flawed about us. Jesus has a healthy suspicion about our loyalty and our purity. Later in John's gospel, after Jesus feeds 5,000 people, so this is chapter 6 in John's gospel, there's a key verse, because after he feeds the 5,000, we read that Jesus wanted, um, we'll say it this way, the people wanted to come to Jesus, and they wanted, it says, to make them king by force, 615. Instead of letting them, he withdrew. Why, why would Jesus do a sign have people see him and want to follow him because he did the sign and then withdraw from the people because they want to come make him king. It's like, okay, I'm going to feed you the bread and then I'm just going to, conveniently, this is here, I'm just going to, Jesus is going to go over here. Like, okay, enjoy the bread. Right, what, what is he doing? It's a, it's a very, they, they see the sign, they eat the bread, they want to make him king and he, he goes and hides. Why was he not trusting those who were trusting him? Let me read verse 23 again. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. People were supposed to see the signs and believe in his name. So what's wrong? There's something about their belief, as there was something about hitting 70 home runs in one season, and something about Lance's tour victories that's not to be trusted. That's what Jesus is saying about our humanity our anthropology. An Old Testament prophet named Jeremiah put it once like this, the heart is deceitful above all things, Jeremiah 17, 9. 
Theologians sometimes use the phrase total depravity to describe this view of humans. Total depravity is often misunderstood. It's, it, it, it sounds as though we're saying people are as bad as they could be. That's not what total depravity means. Total depravity means that every part of us, our totality, is touched by sin. Such that even our good deeds are tainted. Our corruption is total in the sense that... I'm sorry, I don't know why that keeps clicking. Total in the sense that everything we're touched by, or every good work we do is touched by corruption. Another way to say it is that even our best works are built on a foundation with cracks. This passage in John, as it points to the flaws and cracks and darkness, can be offensive. It points out the dangers of embracing the follow-your-heart view of life. If there's something wrong with our hearts, something ugly within us, we ought to be careful about following our hearts without reservation. We should cultivate humility and accountability rather than shirking it off. I'll give you just one example for how this works out for me. We have a sermon debrief meeting here at our church with nine people. Half of them are volunteers, half of them are staff or so. I know you can't divide nine and half, but it's roughly, depends on the number at the time, but half and half, and we get together each Monday to talk about the sermon, and we all have different opinions about what makes for a good sermon. I mean, there's some general consensus, of course, but it's diversified intentionally, and it's hard in some ways to hold it together. Different people have viewed things different way, but that's exactly why we do it. Because as a lead pastor, I don't want to be, and I don't want any of our other pastors to be those who assume everything we say is right. We want that accountability. What I want to suggest is you're probably more affected by this follow your heart mentality more than you think, even though you'd like, okay, full-blown follow your heart. I, would, I could shrug that off. That's, that's not me. That's for somebody out there. But I, I think it's closer to us than we realize. I'll give you two examples. One of them is about church, and one of them's about prayer. To put it very concretely, most of you will come to this church, and then most of you, whenever you decide to leave, you'll leave without ever having a conversation with any of the pastors. I'd say that based on the experience of a decade of tons and tons of people leaving this church. And what I can say is that most people will make the decision without ever talking to the pastors that presumably they were looking to spiritual counsel for week in, week out, or one week a month, or whatever it is. And what I'm not trying to do is take away your agency and the choice. You should choose which church you go to. I'm just asking the question, should you choose which church to go to or not go to by yourself? Now, I think it's a bad thing to just leave a church without talking to the pastors, again, who presumably you were seeking spiritual counsel from week in and week out. At least that's what it seems like we're doing here. But what I'm trying to say is not to critique that so much by itself, but point it out as a deeper symptom that the follow-our-heart mentality is alive and well among us. Our willingness Unwillingness, I should say, to seek counsel from others communicates that deep down we trust too much in our trust. I'll give you another example. I think of the way this affects our culture of prayer, or maybe I should say lack of prayer. Across the board, we do not have a vibrant culture of desperate prayer. Why? Several reasons. For starters, 
More th- after more than eight years here, this church reflects some of my strengths and some of my weaknesses disproportionately to probably any other member because I stand up here more than any other member. And in that reflecting back of my strengths and weaknesses, we're reflecting back one of my weaknesses, which is not valuing desperate, needy prayer, the kind of prayer that trusts God because there's nowhere else to trust. So that's on me. I also think our church leadership is not the best at creating the right venues. We've, we've tried before and it just doesn't ever seem to stick. I don't know why. But create the right venues for the right prayer and the right times and all that. And we're bad at that. That's on us too. But there's another reason. I don't think we think we need God. We are, you and I included, in an environment and a country where we're preached to follow our heart. Your heart will guide you. Your heart can't be wrong, we're told. We're told this in nearly every show, every movie, every news channel. So much of our educational system, so much of our like literature and self-help gurus. Yesterday, I was reading the marketing on a yogurt cup sitting on our breakfast table, and it was preaching the sermon, follow your heart, you do you, on the yogurt cup of our breakfast table. True story. In the church, we might not think we're affected this, but I'm telling you, as a shepherd of you, we are. It's so hard to build a culture of desperate prayer when we don't think we need. Instead, if we saw ourselves as weak, wounded, and wayward, if we saw ourselves the way Jesus sees us, we might be people who pray. All of this is underscored in the passage we'll come to next week. In fact, again, hopefully just leave the Bible open there. I want to read you a few verses. We're supposed to see this passage vitally connected to the next passage. So I'm going to read verses 23, 24, 25, and then I'm going to read 1 and 2 of the next week's passage into chapter 3 where we meet a man named Nicodemus. Just go with me here. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the, ruler, uh, the, the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher and who has come from God. That sounds like a witness. For no one could do the, perform the signs you were doing if God were not with him. That sounds like belief. Nicodemus seems to be believing in Jesus. He sees the signs, but there's something wrong, as we'll find out with his belief, with his witness. Nicodemus, we'll see, needs more than a moral improvement program. His anthropology is so bad, he needs to be reborn. He needs a new heart, and you'll have to come back next week. Pastor Ben will be leading us in that passage. And so here, as we move towards the last part of our sermon, we need to talk about something better. Our first point was that believing biblical anthropology is good for you. It's good for us to know who we really are. I'll put it like this. You might choose to buy a house that has a crack in the foundation. Like You, you might choose to do that. Maybe you think you can fix it. Maybe you think it's a good deal. Maybe you're going to demolish it and build a new house. But, but you, like, you need to know that it's there 
so that you can account for it. Because buying a house with a crack in the foundation is a very different thing, knowing it and not knowing it. What I'm trying to say, it's good to know that we're cracked. Because we can do something about it. That's why it's good to know our biblical anthropology. And not only that, is it good to know who we really are? It helps us know how to look for the right person. Which is why the second point is this. Believing biblical Christology is even better good news for you. The word Christology, another big word. This means, who is Jesus? Who is he? What has he done? Short as these verses are, they say much about our Savior. It says, first, he's all-knowing and yet without need. Look at it again. But Jesus did not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. Have you ever thought about how good it is that Jesus doesn't need anything, including you? I mean, he wants you. He doesn't need you. I'll put it like this. What if he did have needs? What if Jesus' emotional well-being hinged on how faithful you were today? That's not good news. And consider his knowledge. In a few weeks, we'll come to chapter 4. Jesus has this whole conversation with a woman. And after the conversation, the woman evangelizes the whole town. Do you know what her, her statement is? What she preaches around the town? She goes around? 429, she says, Come, see a man who has told me everything I have ever done. Could this be the Messiah? Jesus doesn't need to see your Amazon shopping cart to know you. He doesn't need to see your Netflix history. He doesn't need to know your GPA, your internet browsing history. He doesn't need to see your bank account. He doesn't need to be invited into your living room, your dining room, your kitchen. He doesn't need to read your diary. He just knows. Think about the contrast that is with us. In some seasons, I feel like I fill out one pastoral recommendation letter a week. <laughs> Last week, I was asked to fill out two references. Every time all of you want to volunteer at some Christian ministry or work with children, I get, I get this call or I get this email, and I'm glad. I'm glad. I'm not, I'm not disappointed. Oh my. It's good work. I'll do this. So I say yes, and I talk to people. But think about what that dynamic communicates. We don't know who people are. We have to feel it out and get references. We have to do hours of interviews. Jesus is so different, and that's a good thing. And he's also light. Jesus is also different from us in his essence. Where we have cracks, he is firm through and through. Where we have some darkness, he has all light, top to bottom. Where we are upside down, he is right side up. Listen to the verses from chapter 1. This is how John begins his gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life. And that life was the light of mankind, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. That's Jesus. The light of Jesus shines so brightly that the darkness can't overcome it. That's good news for you. It means that whatever you've done, no matter how bad, no matter how shameful, your darkness can't conquer the light of Christ. But we need to slow down for just a bit. 
Because if all this is true, do you, do you see the problem that's kind of developing here? Okay. We have cracks in our found Jesus, Jesus has none. Or we have fa- cracks in our found Jesus has none. He's all-knowing, he's all-light, he's all-moral, pure excellence. Isn't that a problem for us? How's that good news? If we have nothing we can do to earn God's love, and if everything we do do that's even good is tainted by our fallenness, that sounds like a problem, and it is. It's actually the greatest problem in all of the Bible. How can a holy God love a sinful people? why we need to remember his love. He's all-knowing, he's all-light, and he's all of love. At the start of the sermon, I told you to draw a picture, consider drawing a picture of a heart, and then I said, make it as ugly as you can. We don't see our hearts that way, and in truth, all of our hearts aren't that way all the time, but all of our hearts are touched by that, and it's what God sees. could see the worst parts of us. I'd love for you to consider on that same picture, just writing the phrase somewhere on it, Jesus loves me. We don't see this love in the passage necessarily, just like if we're looking just at these verses, but we have to consider what story these verses exist within. These verses fit within a story. Jesus feeds the 5,000, and then he hides. Because the story is not merely of a bread machine, but of a savior. He's doing more than the signs. The gospel is the story of the savior who knows the worst about you, and because of that, dies for you, which is why I say Jesus loves you, the real you, not not the Sunday morning version of you. Not the, here's my greatest successes version of you. Not the manicured and makeup version of you. But he loves you as you. I titled this sermon as a phrase from a passage in the book of Romans. While we were still sinners. The phrase comes from chapter 5. Let me, let me just read this passage to you and we'll close. At just the right time. When we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely, Paul writes, will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There's a story as old as Adam and Eve, a story of men and women with flaws, but there's a greater story around that story. The story of a Savior who can crush the head of the serpent and cover all of our shame. And the truer, greater story can be your story if you want it to be. Would you join me in prayer as we invite the worship team back up to lead us in song? Heavenly Father, we thank you that your mercy is more. Stronger than darkness, new every morning. 
We thank you for your sturdy, strong, even eternal love. Lord, I pray for those who are downcast this morning, that there would be an appropriate looking away, a looking up, to see your smile in the gospel. Lord, I pray for those that are trying to just do good enough, that out of the despair that comes with that, there would also be an appropriate looking up and hearing you say, it is finished. Lord, we thank you for the good news story of Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray and sing and live.